Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. Additional support comes from State Street, produced by KUER. Hosts Sonia Hudson and Emily Means take a fresh look at politics the Utah way. Get episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at statestreetpod.org. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Representative Suzanne Harrison, Democratic member of the Utah House of Representatives, Doug Wilkes, executive editor of the Deseret News, and Derek Brown, partner with Lincoln Hill. So glad to have you all with us. We have a lot to cover. I wanna start on a more somber note, however. Um, lots happening in this world. I wanna to talk uh, to you about the Utah perspective on Russia invading Ukraine on Wednesday. Before we talk about the politics though, Doug, I wanna start with you because when it comes to the humanitarian side of something like this happening, Utah has been a state that has stood up in the past. Well, we learned even this week where Governor Cox talked about um, 900 Afghani refugees who have come in for the Afghanistan crisis. Um, but in Ukraine, um, there's predictions of a great exodus of people from Ukraine. At first, they were going to flee the occupied territories and then stay in country. Now it seems clear that the whole country could be occupied. Um, they're already accepting people into Poland. I happened to be with the International Rescue Committee in Washington, D.C. this past week. And they're anticipating a, a, a great humanitarian crisis of people having to leave Ukraine. And so when you look at Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, and now Ukraine, this impacts all of us globally. And we've already seen the impacts here in Utah. Um, but that's why we really need to be concerned because there's all the politics involved with, with Putin and uh, Ukraine. But from our perspective, how do you help the people that are going to be affected on the ground? Mm -hmm. Representative, our own legislature is, is, is going to be weighing in in some way here shortly. Yeah, we're preparing a resolution condemning the actions of Russia in the strongest terms. And yesterday we had a real moment, a somber moment on the House floor. One of our own, Representative Jordan Tusher's family is from Ukraine and they are in Ukraine. and. My heart and goes out to the people of Ukraine, and, and Russia must be held accountable. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some personal connection to Ukraine, Derek. Yeah, I actually spent some time with the Levitt Institute there a number of years ago working in and teaching in law schools. And it's, it's hard to imagine because for anyone who hasn't been there, it's a modern country. I mean, it it's, looks like the rest of Europe. And this idea that you have a superpower that just can sort of waltz in and, and try to take over. I mean, it's it's a foreign concept to any of us because it's never happened in our lives. And I think the real issue is also if we look out sort of strategically, you know, if you are Latvia or Estonia who also have pretty substantial Russian-speaking minorities, you've got to be concerned as well. And I think the, the sort of the global impact of this mm -hmm. has yet to be seen because I think this has much more to do with the entire region and not just Ukraine. Uh -huh. And it's moving quickly, obviously, right? I mean, there'll be more actions today and through the weekend. So it'll be very interesting to see where this goes. Mm -hmm. uh, Derek, we had some of our elected officials weigh in pretty quickly too. I, I wanna highlight one from Senator Mitt Romney because he, this, this is not a new issue for him to be talking about, but uh, you know, he wouldn't have wanted to be right about this. Uh, it was an interesting comment he made immediately after the invasion. Uh, he said that Putin's Ukraine invasion is the first time in 80 years that a great power has moved to conquer 
a sovereign nation. It is without justification, without provocation, and without honor. And, and can I just mention that this was the issue that Romney was mocked for when he ran for president, because he was asked, you know, point blank, what do you think one of the greatest issues is that we need to look at? And he mentioned Russia and Putin, and there was this collective gasp and mocking, and, you know, he was ridiculed. I remember at the time, I think it was Obama that said, hey, the 80s called, they want their foreign policy back. Well, yeah. you know, fast forward now a decade, and we're all looking back at that statement and thinking, yeah. He was right on. Mm -hmm. Doug, I want to talk just a little more about this from the Utah perspective. Desert News, Hinckley Institute recently did some polling on this very issue before the invasion uh, happened. And uh, we asked Utahns uh, how concerned they were about the buildup of Russian troops. Interestingly enough, 76% of Utahns were concerned, 19% said no, but also about the question, which was one of your ideas, the, the follow-up of whether or not troops should be involved. Uh, this was a little closer, but still 46% of Utahns said uh, they would support if it came to that. The hard part is what's the exit strategy if you go in with troops, right? What was the exit strategy out of Afghanistan? We didn't really have one that was well-crafted. so. Emotionally, you might feel like, yes, we need to go and defend freedom. We need to go and defend Ukrainians from this encroachment. But um, putting putting boots on the ground, as it were, or putting in a full force, um, I don't think there really is an, a an appetite. Certainly half of Utah doesn't think that should happen. The nation doesn't think that should happen. So you're looking for um, a stranglehold on the money, really, is what will make a difference there in, in uh, Ukraine as it relates to Russia. Mm -hmm. No doubt the state of Utah will step up when our time comes to help in some way where we can. I want to get to uh, the legislative session for a moment because we have a lot of bills that have started to come forward. Sometimes there's some strategy as to when the controversial ones come, uh, when some of the ones are easy at the end. But I want to start talking about water for a second, but not the kind we might be thinking about, about lakes. Two bills talking about lakes, and I want to start with that for a second. Representative, first, a big investment plan from you and your colleagues on the Great Salt Lake, a $40 million trust. Talk about what that is and why the Great Salt Lake keeps being discussed with our legislature. Well, and really, this Speaker Wilson deserves a lot of credit on his leadership on identifying the need for water conservation and saving the Great Salt Lake. It is at the lowest level it has ever been recorded. And many legislators had the opportunity because of the amazing uh, Utah National Guard to actually go out and see the lake for ourselves. It was part of their regular right. training session, but we were able to fly out there and see for ourselves the, the crisis that the Great Salt Lake is in. And Speaker Wilson is really spearheading mm -hmm. financial resources and also legislation to keep water in those in those rivers to get back to the Great Salt Lake. It has economic <coughs> impacts and, yeah. and especially, you know, a lot of people think, well, what does it matter? It's the Great Salt Lake. But if you care about clean air and you care about air quality in this state, the Great Salt Lake needs to be saved, and we need to have a healthy Great Salt Lake. Otherwise, toxic dust storms mm -hmm. are, are part of our future, and, and it really could impact our economic and health future. That's true. Uh, Derek, it's interesting. This is a bipartisan issue here. These environmental Absolutely. issues representatives talking about, this is something we're seeing more and more of. Talk about that from, from that perspective, because the lake is lower, I understand, 11 feet lower than when Brigham Young yes. first. The pioneers had a, had a method of actually marking the, the level of the lake. And so, I mean, we, could, we know exactly where it was. And so, but I, I, I echo that. I think uh, Speaker Wilson has done a good job of sort of taking this issue on. And it has become bipartisan. And in part, because it is, 
I mean, it's an it's an economic issue, and you've got. I mean, there's a lake effect, and that impacts that impacts the snow, right? In terms of you know how much snow we have in the state uh, but I love the fact that it is becoming a or it has become a bipartisan issue I think everyone recognizes that we need to do something about this and it doesn't mean that as a state we or as a as an area we need to look like Tucson and have zero escaping everywhere what it means is we need to get serious about the issue and we need to look at creative ways to conserve water and to preserve this. I mean, there's also, this is one of the most important stopovers or refueling areas for migratory birds, tens right. of millions going north. And so those are the kinds of things we need to protect. And, and if we lose that, um, I think there will be impacts for generations to come. And it really raises the issue of water conservation, which we're behind on compared to our neighboring states. But I hope this is the first step in continued efforts in water conservation at every level, whether that's agricultural efficiencies. We have some great legislation to increase water metering, which has been shown to increase conservation of water. There's more work ahead, and I think this is a great down payment. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how uh, the speaker is referring to it, too. If I can say one thing yeah, about it, there's. Um, We've seen a change from the media perspective about awareness from Utahns that the Great Salt Lake was kind of there and we've had tough years before. We had floods in, in 83, was it? And so they put the pumps out there which haven't needed to be used really. Um, but now everyone recognizes the ripple effect of that lake going away. You mentioned air pollution, you mentioned the ski industry and lake affects snow. Um, you mentioned the environmental consequence of migratory birds not coming through. That has a tremendous um, ecological mm -hmm. factor. So now there is a solution-based approach and the $40 million, they don't have everything earmarked. I mean, what do you do with that money? You create plans to save wetlands, to do things mm -hmm. in place. So to have a mechanism now to do that is commendable. Right, we'll watch this one closely. It's the first step we understand. Let's talk about Utah Lake. All right, Derek, start. This, this is something that I'm hearing on the Hill a lot the last couple of days. I think it's going to occupy some attention too. 34 artificial islands in Utah Lake. That's one of the proposals. Talk about that for just a moment because this, w w the, the ground has been paid for this for a couple of years about this possibility. Well, they've talked about it quite a bit. I think my understanding is this would be the largest public-private partnership ever in the state of Utah. And what they're trying to do is be creative about solving a problem. And the problem is that Utah Lake isn't what it used to be. It's got algae. It smells. It's, it's this amazing natural resource that we have in Utah County that no one really uses. All we do is just drive around it. No one gets on it, no one, no one uses it the same way we have other reservoirs. And so, I mean, I think it's a, a creative way of combining resources to, to dredge the lake in a way that will fix a lot of the environmental problems, but then you've got that that compost and the other stuff that is down there that needs to be put somewhere and so to create islands I, I mean I think it's a it's a clever solution but what I like is that there are environmental benchmarks that they have to achieve for it to work and so the EPA is currently looking at it and so it's not just like they're gonna turn it over to a private company I mean there are benchmarks that they need to achieve otherwise it won't take place <laughs> representatives uh, i'll get your comment too but one of the, this this is what we've heard in terms of this argument here is on average they would it would be seven feet deeper uh by dredging it and creating this islands the islands which some say at least the proponents are saying would impact the algae blooms that kind of thing talk about that for just a moment because <laughs> you're hearing on the inside what we're not well, I think everyone agrees that Utah Lake needs help, just like the Great Salt Lake. There's algae blooms, there's pollution issues. We're all on the same page about helping Utah Lake. The, the, the 
conflict is in how. Mm -hmm. And building a whole bunch of islands in a developer giveaway scheme is not going to help clean up Utah Lake. It will disrupt the natural ecology of the lake and it will really just be a boondoggle for, for Utahns. And one of my concerns is that many in the in the scientific community, a professor down at BYU mm -hmm. who's been speaking right. out about this, <coughs> you know, gets slapped with a $3 million lawsuit. Um, the science doesn't back this up. I'm really grateful for Representative Kevin Stratton's bill that will really put some guardrails in mm -hmm. place to, to mandate that there's science before we do this big giveaway to developers. Mm -hmm. Doug? Um, well, you've kind of seen what, what side do you come down on? One, does it help the environment down there? Will the dredging help or hurt it? Um, there have been plans to put a bridge across Utah Lake before, right? Uh, so there's been different things that have been proposed. Now what's happened is the community of Vintage is growing up. That's supposed to be a 40,000-person community. You have Saratoga Springs. You have um, Eagle Mountain. So that lake is being circled. So if you look at the next 30 years, how does that become a strong resource? Um, the bill to give more oversight to the legislature, to the governor's office, you know, those are things in place because people aren't sure what the impact will be. Mm -hmm. So um, is it a boondoggle? I don't know yet, but clearly you've got to follow science. And uh, yeah, we weren't, uh, we had a healthy debate in the pages of the Deseret News about, um, you know, the lawsuit and when the professor spoke out because you want to have a healthy dialogue around this mm -hmm. issue. Um, to see what will come next. Mm -hmm. And the science uh, yeah, community is saying the science doesn't back up the claims that building a bunch of islands in Utah Lake will clean it up. Okay. Which is why the EPA, of course, is involved. And, and if it doesn't back it up, then they won't do it. So I think putting those guarrails in, in place makes a lot of sense, well, which is what they're doing. Well, the EPA is a process, too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a full this is a long-term process. This is a long-term, yeah, play. Let me see why this is going to be interesting this last week. Yeah. on this one. Can we get to uh, the revenue numbers for a second? Because I want to talk about how that impacts uh, education in particular. And the reason I mention this is uh, since our last show, we had the consensus revenue numbers for the state. So and I want to get your, your response to, the, to this, uh, what the plans are, Representative. Uh, the final numbers for this session, $1.46 billion, a billion dollars of one-time money, $570 million of ongoing money. Talk about how that is going to be used uh, with you and your colleagues, particularly when it relates to education. Well, I think Utah has weathered the pandemic better than almost any other state. And I think a lot of that credit goes to our industry, our values, and our hardworking uh, people here. Uh, it, it, it depends on who you talk to where that revenue yeah. should go, certainly. I would like to see a more robust investment in our kids and our, their future in public education. I, I love that we're doing some of these generational investments in, in our Great Salt Lake water conservation as we've talked about. <coughs> now is the time to invest in our future and, and a down payment on making sure every child has the resources and skills that they need to thrive in the future economy by investing in public education is, is, is money well spent. I'd love to see a full-day kindergarten, optional right. full-day kindergarten, fully funded, um, making sure that our teachers are supported and well-paid and that we're, you know, there's a lot of concern from our our teachers that many of them, because of the pandemic, they're thinking about leaving. It's It's been a really tough couple years and we, we need to make sure that we have our best and bright, brightest going into the classroom. So you're working on this full-day kindergarten issue. Yeah, and, and that's one of those sort of generational investments. And I think the federal money that's coming in, I mean, the idea is that, that we create 
generational investments, things that will outlast mm -hmm. us. And the, I used to serve in the House of Representatives, and whenever there was a surplus, it actually was much more difficult as a legislator, and, and Representative Harrison knows this, because when there's not enough money, it's very easy for all these requests to be told, sorry, yeah. there's just not the funding. But when there is just just gabs of money like there is right now, I mean, it's it really requires the legislature to go through and prioritize mm -hmm. and to have some difficult conversations with their colleagues to say, look, this is a great project, but it's not one we're gonna fund. So uh, contrary to what you might think, having more money is actually actually in some ways more difficult for the, the legislature. Uh, Doug, I want to talk about one of the difficult conversations that's happening around this very issue. Uh, it has to do with something that's been percolating for a while, the, the difference between sales tax revenue and income tax revenue. So for the last couple of years, our legislature has talked about there's a, there's a, a problem, there's a discrepancy between these two because income tax keeps growing, sales tax is not, and income tax is tied to education, which is why once again this last week, even though it's not going to move forward, our legislature once again talked about, this is some and legislative leadership talked about maybe getting rid of that constitutional earmark tying income tax to education. Well, first off, if you're getting rid of something related to the Constitution, eventually it would have to come to voters. Mm -hmm. So there is that protection that voters will have a say on this no matter what. When we poll about education, everyone wants more money for education. Where the rubber meets the, ro meets the road is what, how do you do it? Um, people want local control. Um, all day kindergarten is one way if you give that opportunity to a district, then the district can decide is that what our constituents, what our parents want. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about supporting teachers. Before the pandemic, many teachers wouldn't last five years. Now that number is even going down. There were bills in the legislature discussed about having oversight of curriculum, meaning a teacher have to file their lesson plan and then follow that lesson plan. Well, you can put, you can put guardrails, you can put parameters in place for your curriculum, and parents certainly need to know what's being taught. But that's not how you teach on a day-to-day -day basis when a student asks you about race or they ask you about uh, um, a controversial issue or they ask you to, you know, what do you hear about the new math? You need to teach and express um, the importance of that content. So focusing money on teachers, having flexibility, the income tax um, is tied to a food tax. We pulled on the food tax. People wanted, mm -hmm. don't want a food tax. Um, so there's a lot surrounding this. And I agree, I think it is more difficult when you have a lot of money because there's a lot of needs. There are, and a lot of asks, that's for yes. sure, too. Talk, talk Before we leave this, Representative, so some are calling this the, the firewall that exists in the Constitution separating these two. Uh, just give your perspective on that, be, w understanding that one side is going up faster than the other side. So, and, and just last election, Utah voters supported a change in the Utah Constitution to allow some of that money that's dedicated to the education fund to be used for uh, services for kids or people with disabilities. And this is the first fiscal year that that, that has really gone into effect. And I, I do appreciate the tension between the general fund and the education fund, but I think the way to address that um, is not the last week of the session. I'm really grateful that legislative leadership is going to push pause on that and we'll you know, talk about it further in interim. But I think the best way to move forward is to invest in our kids, invest in our schools now, put that down payment on to build trust mm -hmm. that um, the legislature is really going to step up and, and adequately fund education. We're still near the bottom of the country in per student funding. <coughs> and you talk to any parent or any teacher 
so many of our kids have needs that aren't being adequately met either at home and, and our school systems are, are often one of the only ways that kids get services. Uh, before we leave this one, I appreciate that. Uh, Doug, we, uh, we did some polling on this too. What's interesting to the good representative's comments here, when, when Utahns were asked what should happen with a surplus, they also said education. Yeah, they will always say education, but how do you do that? I think if you have as a, as a guide, guidepost flexibility for parents, especially coming out of COVID, every person I talk to has a unique family situation, whether who's working, who's not working, the, the ability of their student to learn. And so if you can get enough flexibility within education to support teachers, to support students, I think that's where you need to start. Huh. And we, and we can target that to things that we know make a huge difference. You know, we know that mental health services, our kids are coming to school with more stress and more mental health issues, helping get those resources in our schools, making sure that, that our kids have those literacy, early literacy investments. 30% of Utah children are not reading at grade level by third grade. This is a crisis and needs to be a call to action. You know, all day kindergarten, early literacy, these things are key to every child being able to be a thriving, tax-paying, you know, mm -hmm. industrious member of the future. We gotta get to you, Derek, about a couple of other bills interesting, but I got one that's just special for you. Okay. Lobbyists. Yes. <laughs> lobbyists and uh, running campaigns. So interesting. We saw this conflict of interest uh, amendment, interesting it's, from Phil Lyman. So the idea is this, if you run someone's campaign, you can't lobby them. Yeah. That's essentially it. I mean, I, I'll just be blunt. I think it's kind of a clown bill. I mean, just to be really honest, when I was in the House of Representatives, I would always have people that would say, well, those darn lobbyists. And I'd always say, okay, so, you know, what do you think about lower taxes? Well, I really like lower taxes. What do you think about LGBTQ issues? Well, I think those should be pushed as well. I'm like, well, all these issues that you care about, you have individuals and groups on the Hill that are representing you. Should they not be representing you? Well, no, I'm okay with that. I just don't like lobbyists. Okay, hang on. That's not how, this is a First Amendment right to, to advocate with, with the government. And so, you know, this, these are the kind of bills that I think are just, it's someone trying to send a message. But the reality is, it's not going to go anywhere because it, it's not a serious piece of legislation. And not only that, it has major constitutional issues with it as well. Okay. So the statement's been made. I guess we'll see that this one probably won't, won't go forward. Uh, but one that is interesting that is going forward, Doug, is there, there's been a resolution in the, in the Senate and now in the House restricting access uh, of the media to certain parts of the Capitol. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it, it's a bad rule. Um, there are protections in place already to have uh, reporters registered, cleared. They're not a threat. This is um, trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist because they suggest it's because of security issues. There's plenty of security up there. What this, um, what reporters are doing is it allows them to come and, and, and say, hey, you know, I, I see your bill, but I don't quite understand it. Can you clarify it for me? And then you represent the public in a, in a, and, the, and the lawmaker in a more um, honest way. You get the story right. So to put roadblocks in place to make it harder to get a true story out there, I think is, is, is bad. It's, it's not helpful. Well, and I think both of these bills raise important issues of transparency mm -hmm. and, and the work of the people. Because we need our free press to be holding power to account. And we need laws in place that make sure that the interests of the people are really the top mm -hmm. priority, not the interests of the politically powerful or power brokers. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really am concerned about these restrictions on, on our media. I think 
they play a vital role in shining a light on what happens in, in the houses of power. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead, Derek. Well, yeah, and, and just as a, as a side note, I was in D.C. Uh, about a month ago, and the uh, Speaker Pelosi has effectively shut down all of the House buildings. To get even inside the front door after you get through security, you need to have someone from a congressional office come and get you, and you need to be approved. Mm -hmm. And so that, those are security issues, is, is what they're saying on that issue. But, but I think that reasonable restrictions for security purposes make sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think what they ought to look at doing is having sort of a press corps in the same way that they do in D.C., where you have people who have security. But I think, you know, having some of these restrictions in place I don't think it's, it's, I mean, I, I think it's sensible. I don't think you want, for instance, a camera, if you're gonna have a camera or a bunch of cameras coming up behind the dais, you know, in a committee hearing to simply ask the chair, is this, is it okay if we have people now up and crowding around, is that okay? I mean, I think those are the kind of restrictions that they're looking at. It's not a wholesale ban on the media at all, from what I understand. It's not a wholesale yeah. ban, but it's making it more difficult because if someone's walking off the floor and you need to ask them a question, but all of a sudden you need to ask someone, can I have permission to go and ask this question? That makes the work product very, very difficult, the workflow very, very difficult. Um, the sense of having a media coalition, uh, that has been voiced uh, through this session, mm -hmm. and there's support from the media to do that. So this isn't done. Uh, hopefully we can progress and make sure there's access to the media for the public. And also, I haven't heard of an, an incident or a problem that, you know, was the why this, these bills were brought forward. Our media has been very responsible, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, this might be a solution looking for a problem. There, there hasn't been, like, when you're sitting on the stand there, you haven't, see, you haven't experienced that media right over my shoulder, taking pictures of my well, materials. That, well, that is going on. I mean, you do have cameras behind the dais that are, that are you know, and you'll have shots of, like, what the the legislator is working on on their computer and there's been comments by folks in the in the actual hearing on this one of them mentioned sort of poked at legislators that said you know you're you're doing work that isn't the people's work as we can see on your on your computer and so i think comments like that make them a little bit sensitive and you can obviously speak to this better than i can because you're there but i think a lot of them it makes them wonder kind of what's mm -hmm. you know if, if restrictions do make sense as long as they're still open access to the members. Okay, that's well, gonna the, have to be. The public's business should be done in public. That yeah. should be the principle. Gonna have to be the last comment. Thanks for that. Thank you for your great insights this evening. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.